Welcome back to the show. We're about to learn the secret sauce. Anjana, welcome to our studio. Thank you. And, uh, Excited yeah, thanks for to be agreeing. here. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to come out all the way from San Francisco. <laughs> Such a journey. Using public transportation, too, <laughs> yes. as well. Yeah, trying, trying to, you know... Uh, save where we can. But yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so setting the stage for folks who haven't watched one of these before, like we talk about open source, really, it's like kind of the journey that we're sort of building a product around and talking about your open source journey. And uh, I reached out to you because I saw a tweet of you sort of celebrating, I think it was like a milestone for Outreachy. You had done Outreachy. Uh, I want to talk about how you got to Outreachy. But um, yeah. sort of we can start with like your, your background, um, philosophy degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I went to school actually here in the Bay Area, Cal, um, got a philosophy bachelor's, um, also studied foreign languages and uh, French and things like that. So humanities degree. I tried a computer science class for a couple of weeks at, and Berkeley? I just, at Berkeley and I found that it wasn't, uh, it was like a self-paced class. I didn't really know what I was going to use it for. I just thought it was interesting and it just wasn't as exciting as some of the, you know, modern philosophy classes that I wanted to take. <laughs> so yeah. at the time, I um, I kind of tried it out really briefly, like wrote like two lines of scheme or something and then gave up. Um, but later, I ended up, after graduating, I became an English as a foreign language teacher. And so I was studying linguistics on my own to sort of understand language acquisition better, understand how to be a better language teacher, a better language student, because I love learning foreign languages too, and um, ultimately ended up going back to school to do a master's in a field that I did not know existed until I did a master's in it called computational linguistics. Okay. Uh, could you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> computational linguistics is kind of this big umbrella term that refers to a lot of things that sit at the intersection of computing and human natural language. So that seems um, very in vogue nowadays with oh, the, yeah. the AI machine learning. Yeah, so tons of natural language processing, tons of speech recognition or speech synthesis, like um, natural language understanding, all of these things, all of these uh, technologies that you'd need to build like a Siri or an AI um, yeah. a chat assistant or anything chat, that's like chat AI. GPT. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> anything that's kind of like AI. Yeah, these these big, these really successful language models, like that sort of work, it falls under the umbrella of computational linguistics and as well as essentially doing linguistics, which is the scientific study of, of human language uh, in a computational methodological way. So yeah. using, like, let's say, studying big corpora and crunching the numbers to figure yeah. out how language works as opposed to, let's say, just sitting back in an armchair and thinking, hmm, well, this is how my language works, so I bet language all works that way, which is not. Okay, so you went from philosophy to something that's <laughs> that. actionable. Yeah, and so I was really interested in speech uh, technology, so I was studying speech um, technology, especially for um, language learning or language teaching applications, let's say. So like computer-assisted pronunciation training and things like that. Um, but in any case, I was I had to do a lot of coding to get through this program um, and to do my research in linguistics. I was trying to implement, uh, you know, algorithms from other people's papers that they'd published or trying to develop um, small apps to kind of test some of the, the hypotheses that we were forming, that sort of thing. And so was learning how to code kind of in fits and starts here and there. Didn't really know better than to try a bunch of different languages all at the start. 
And so I was doing a little bit of Python, a little bit of Groovy and JVM stuff, a little bit of a tiny smattering of JavaScript maybe here and there, but mostly uh, Python, I guess, at the time. And I found that I really loved writing the software yeah, that but, I needed but to no, do my research. Like structured learning except the one course there was a course um so there was a course uh that we had to do in as part of the master's program that i took um which i went to school in in germany for that and we had we had like one dedicated programming course in python which was really useful i learned like object-oriented python that stood me in good stead for what ended up being then my kind of my first couple of jobs were in python but at the same time i was learning a lot just kind of by poking at things or just writing a lot of code that you know i'm sure now i would go back and read and have feelings about um but uh, but you know just kind of trying to get things to work here and there and i found that uh kind of in the academic context where i started learning to code um, there were a lot of things that I now know were missing that I didn't at the time know were supposed to be there, like things like version control for a project that yeah. people at the department are all going to be working on together, or things like um, being able to read someone else's published work and go look up their source code on GitHub, right? Like that is amazing for science when you can actually see not just the answer that they got, but like the work that they, the, how they've how they calculated those numbers, yeah. that sort of thing. So um, I became really interested in those type of things. So sort of the open research vibe, the the idea of like, let's put all of our code up on GitHub, let's train the department and the research assistants in like version control. And so like, this is how I kind of got started with all of that. And it just seemed really interesting to me. Like, how do people actually build huge software programs? Because I'm pretty sure it can't be that like all of the code is in that one doctoral student's laptop and yeah. it's just a messy mess of like completely obfuscated variable names and thousand line methods and like this can't be how like real software developers write software right so I sort of was having that feeling of I need to go somewhere and like really learn this like yeah. software thing because it's cool and Seems like I could learn it better. Yeah. What year and was this that you were sort of having the discovery going back and got your, your this, master's? Yeah, this was so I did a master's from I think twenty twelve to twenty fifteen. Okay. Um so this was probably around like around like twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, I started being more and more interested in software. And that's around the time I think it was like beginning of twenty fifteen, maybe, I found out about this cool place called well, then it was called Hacker School and now it's called the Recurse Center. So that is what I uh, kind of when I took the leap from getting out of academia and trying to get a foot in the door in the industry. Yeah. 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 And Recurse is uh, still around. They're still operating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Do yeah. explain uh, what's the what's the structure and how you obviously went through it. So like, what, what did you learn through it? Yeah. So the Recurse Center, um, which you can read all about at Recurse.com, um, is a really awesome. I think of it as a programming community, like a community for people who are interested in code and interested in computer science. And they sometimes call it a programming retreat. So they run this, it used to be in person in New York. Now I believe it's virtual still um, since the pandemic. But the idea is that it's sort of like a writer's retreat, but for programmers. So anybody can go there at any stage of their coding journey. The idea is that you do already know how to code, but you don't necessarily have been doing it long. You, you aren't necessarily a professional or anything like that. And then other people have been coding professionally as software engineers or higher uh, for decades, and they come back there. And so everybody is there um, in a very unstructured, self-directed environment. So there are no classes. There's no curriculum. There's no teachers. 
Uh, there are only a bunch of really excited people who are there eager to learn about their own particular curiosities. So everybody is following their own path. So maybe one person is like, I want to learn Rust. Another person is, um, I want to figure out how to, you know, write 8-bit games in assembly or whatever. I have another person is maybe doing machine learning stuff with uh, like really cool computer vision things. Let's say okay. uh, somebody else is working on a game that they're building in Unity, that sort of thing. So everybody's doing different things, but the idea is that um, they really kind of filter for people who are excited to share their knowledge and to like help other people learn. And so they have some guardrails in place to make sure it stays a really like safe learning environment and really um, encouraging. So are there like mentors that are sort of fielding ideas or maybe doing some matchmaking for folks who are working on similar things? Yeah, so there are some staff members. I believe they call them faculty members, but they're um, not necessarily... They, they've gone through a few different iterations. When I was there, there were a couple of people called facilitators that were there to do exactly that, to kind of yeah. help people along when they get stuck or to just maybe pair with somebody for a little yeah. while. But of course, you have everybody else in your... They call them batches. So everybody else in your batch is also there for, you know, if you're looking for somebody to sort of bang your heads together on a particular problem. You say, hey, like I'm looking for somebody to pair with and and usually find someone. But um, nowadays, I think I think they discontinued the concept of facilitators because it did kind of, they, I think they really want to underscore this idea that everyone has something to contribute. Everyone yeah. has something to teach, even if you're new, even if you're learning, like that's valuable. And as uh, somebody who's maybe more senior, let's say pairing with somebody who's more junior, like, and I think we see this in our workplaces a lot too, yeah. you know, the, the more senior person is getting a lot out of it too, right? They have to work on explaining their thought processes. They have to work on breaking down assumptions. They have to work on communicating uh, complex topics to someone who's not as well-versed in all the technicalities. So um, the idea, I think, at the Recurse Center is that everybody is really kind of in it together and, and giving back and learning from each other in this kind of perpetual everlasting motion cycle is the idea. Yeah, and how's this, how is this all funded? Is it self-funded or is there a grant program? So there actually is no cost to attend. Okay. So it's totally free for participants. Um, when it was in person in New York, there was, of course, a cost associated with like yeah, being in New York for six weeks or three months. But um, at the time that I did it, when it was in New York, um, there was a grant program to assist with living expenses for underrepresented folks. Okay. Um, so that's really cool. But they're, the way that they make money, the way that they fund the thing is that they, uh, they partner with tech companies to help find engineers for them. So if you're going through the Recur Center, you don't have to take a job through their kind of career center, um, but you are welcome to use their career center if you're looking for work. And yeah. because the people that tend to go there tend to be very self-motivated, self-driven, they tend to be very kind of curious and have a lot of um, interest in growing and expanding their skill sets. Uh, companies, I think, find that a really nice pool to to yeah. pull from and talk to. And so they'll have things like um, little job fair meetups and things like th things like that. Um, they'll have uh, they'll have you know testimonials, let's say, from other people who've interviewed at that company to give you a sense of what it's going to be like. So there's a lot of uh, kind of emphasis for participants on the fact that they'll help you get a job in the industry if you want one. Um, and then for companies, it's great. And I've worked at a couple of companies that have yeah. recruited from there, and it's great because you have this kind of um, helping hand also on that side with the the Recur Center staff helping pull people in who might be a great fit, might be interested in what you're doing, might, you know, have the right skills to fill gaps on your team, that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm curious, like during your time there, did you have any sort of aha moments or like you 
came in probably pretty junior because like you just learned how to code for the purposes of your master's. Mm -hmm. So like, did you get to partner with other like more senior skilled folks in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I had some amazing experiences there learning from really awesome folks in the industry. Um, I, um, for example, one of the, one of the really fun projects that I was working on. So I was learning, uh, more about programming languages and about different paradigms. So, uh, I, as I talk a lot about functional programming, I was learning functional programming there, but I was also just learning there's a lot of different types of programming out there and there's a lot of different languages as opposed to Python, which I had been working in not exclusively, but largely, um, and kind of got really used to the way things were done in that. It was like, oh, there's all kinds of different languages out there that are possible. And so there was a um, computer science professor there named uh, Prabhakar Ragde who gave a talk about the most minimal set of features a programming language would need to be productive and useful. Oh, that's interesting. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And let me see if I can try. I was reading about like building your own interpreters and things. I was like, let me see if I can try to implement a really minimal language here based on yeah. this computer science professor's talk. And while I was implementing that, there happened to be another, um, uh, they had a concept of like visiting residents at the time. Um, and so Marijn Hafabeke, who's the creator of Code Mirror and um, wrote the book Eloquent JavaScript. So okay, like, yeah, yeah. A, like, you know, a, a really great person uh, to learn coding from um, happened to be there and was like, oh, that would be fun to pair on building a programming language. So I got to pair with Marijn on like building a programming language based on Prabhakar's uh, talk. And like it was, you know, it was just a really nice kind of confluence. It? I mean, completed to the sense of like I got the minimal set of features. And what are the, built. What it was are the a minimal? toy little language. Oof, I'd have to go back and like recall everything. But let's, it was essentially like a tiny, like lispy language. Okay. Um, I think it's still on my GitHub. It's, I called it Kimmy, keep it minimal, like K-I-M-I. So you can check it out, GitHub, uh, Vakila slash Kimmy. Um, but uh, I think it was just, it just really needed to have like some construct to to make functions essentially yeah. and some construct for um, I think like basic data, you know, in the sense of numbers or strings or something like that. But, you know, I, I would have to go back and, and really... <laughs> Uh, hammer it down. I hope I wrote it all down in the readme. Let's see. Let's find yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if you get a little more stars. Uh, you might see some uptick. I mean, it was really just a learning project. It wasn't yeah. ever a language I intended anybody to use for anything. I didn't even really use it for anything. It was really just um, the process of learning, like what goes into an interpreter, like yeah. what is an abstract syntax tree, like how are, what are all of these these things that are happening under the hood or behind the scenes every time I type code into my Python yeah. interpreter that what is happening there and how can we, you know, how can I understand that better? So what was the result of the recurse center? Like, what did you take from it? And like, where did you go from there? Yeah. What did I take from it? Well, um, it was, it was really interesting. It was really intense, uh, trying to kind of wrap my head around my, one of my things that I was focusing there was, uh, filling in some of the gaps in my lack of computer science education. So just basic algorithms and data structures. And so doing a lot of things like interview practice and that sort of thing. So I decided I wanted to yeah. try to get into the industry. And so that is, I would say, what I took away. Not only an amazing like group of people and just amazing community, um, which I think is the number one most important thing, period, but also just a lot of ideas and opportunities that I wasn't aware of, of how to continue in my career. So for example, um, as I was just mentioning before we hit record that I didn't have a Twitter account before I went to the Reeker Center. And um, I think it was my batchmate, Sal Becker, who was like, if you want to 
join the tech community. Twitter is a great place to do it. Great place to find opportunities and, you know, connect with people. And it, it was, and it has been great for my career. And the other thing, the other big discovery was, uh, outreachy. So outreachy is this amazing, um, internship program in open source. And I didn't know it existed until I went to the recurse center. There were uh, quite a few people there who had either done it or, um, mentored for it or otherwise were involved. And so, Found out about it through there. Um, I applied while I was in batch, as they say, um, in, I think that was, yeah, 2015. I f- did not get in, was rejected. Okay. But learned a lot from that. And then six months later, after I had left the Recurse Center, um, Outreachy runs twice a year. So six months later, I applied again. And that time, I used what I had learned of how not to do it and uh, yeah. managed to I get mean, what in. What was the insight, uh, or what is the requirement to, to be part of the outreach program? Yeah, so Outreachy is, well, so first of all, it's a very cool um, program because it is open to pretty much um, anyone who's from a marginalized group in tech. It was originally called the Outreach Program for Women, so it originally was kind of more focused on women, but now I believe it's much more open. Um, but it is, it is for people who are traditionally underrepresented. Um, and it's a paid remote internship. And so the way that it works is that different organizations who run big open source projects uh, sponsor individual interns. So um, I, I interned at Mozilla. So Mozilla has a lot of open source going on, yeah. you know, did at the time. And, um, and was, uh, and was um, uh, sponsoring quite a few different projects. And then there are other, other projects in all kinds of different areas, different technologies, different languages, et cetera. But so each project will be kind of sponsored by a dedicated mentor from that organization, whether it be a company like Mozilla or some other organization that's like a nonprofit that manages open source, what have you. And so that um, individual project will have its own requirements of what they're looking for. Sometimes it's they're looking for engineering help. Sometimes they're looking for documentation or community building or uh, product design or UX design or all kinds of different stuff. So it could be in anything and every project is slightly different. And so what you actually need to do is going to be specific to the project. But usually it involves um, making an initial contribution to the project for which you need to kind of get involved in its systems, join whatever the community place of discussion is, yeah. um, you know, go through the process of actually contributing to this whether it be a code base or what have you. And uh, then you usually have to do some kind of write-up about what you would do during your time on the internship. So, you know, what your plan would be for executing on the project that they've laid out. And ideally, they've scoped out really nicely so that it's quite approachable and it's really like kind of intern-sized in in that sense. And so um, each application is going to look a little bit different, but essentially it's you have to make a contribution and um, describe it and describe the future work you would do and a few other things kind of, I think there's, yeah, some essay type writing you need to do. Um, But it's probably changed a little bit since I did it in 2016. And even then it was very specific to the project. It was sort of different for everywhere. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's some commitment from the company side Mm -hmm. uh, or the product side, but so to show some commitment up front from right. the uh, apprentice or what? what yeah, the mentee, mentee, I guess you could say, or the intern. Um, yeah, so that, so what's nice about these internships is they all have a dedicated mentor or dedicated point of contact um, in the organization. And then the mentee or the intern is the person who's kind of um, coming in and, and helping out. And yes, and they do want to see that you're kind of able to 
find your way in yeah. at least like getting started. But but they help out in the sense that they do try to break it down into the most achievable. You know, they'll lay out like for my project, which was an engineering project, um, I was working on the test automation infrastructure for for testing Firefox um, or testing Gecko, the the browser engine behind Firefox, and the. Uh, the, the project was broken down really nicely, perhaps because my mentor, uh, Maya Friedrichowski, was also an outreachy intern once okay. upon a time before oh, nice. it went. That's also, she did an internship at Mitzel. So perhaps she understood even better than many people that um, it's really helpful to have super clear, specific instructions, super detailed guidelines about how to communicate, where the communication should happen, what needs to be done for this project, where to find extra information, that sort of thing. So it was really nice. Um, that was my second time around of like the time I actually got in. Uh, the first time around I was flailing a bit more and like looking at a bunch of different projects and kind of not sure yeah. where to start. And so it was, um, I, I was still really educational for me even when I failed yeah. to get in because I learned, I think I made my uh, first GitHub PR, even though it was like a two line change something like that um but i did go through the pr process and made that you know so up so, until this point you had to use github for more discovery you haven't actually used the the pr feature then so i had used github mostly for my own work like yeah. i put like i put my like master's thesis in there you yeah. know and like the the code projects that i was working on so i had used it for more um uh, kind of exposing what I was doing to the rest of the world so that then I could link to it from my research papers, yeah. things like that. Um, but I hadn't really collaborated with a lot of people on GitHub, if that makes sense. So I had yeah. just been kind of GitHubbing in a bubble, as it were, <laughs> it's or maybe collabing like IRL, but on one yeah. commit, so you know? You, you'd asked about in insights and like what we were, uh, you saw our website. And there's like a, for all the projects that are on GitHub, there's like 280 million. And there's wow. only 200,000 that have more than five contributors. Mm, so that's mm -hmm. inclusive of your projects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty common for people just to use it like Dropbox. Mm -hmm. uh, and the collaboration piece is usually the missing feature for people to go sort of get engaged in mm -hmm. like either a company or a project or mm -hmm. get that aha mentorship yeah. for free, like through yeah. PR. So there's a trend happening right now where more and more startups are starting with open source first. If you check out any of the batches of YC, you'll see more and more open source companies now submitting applications to YC and getting in. Now, this is a good trend because the scale and velocity of what you can do and grow through open source is off the charts. Now at Open Source, we are invigorated by providing actionable insights. Insights.opensource.pizza it's a platform to get intelligence on your open source projects. So if you're a company and you're up and coming through either YC or you're a Series A company who's looking to get their next round of funding and grow community, we have the platform for you. If you're interested in growing your project and growing your open source community, definitely check it out and let us know what you think. Well, what was nice was I actually, um, oh, the other thing that I was using was GitHub Pages. They had okay. launched that, I think, and I was I was able to then use that to kind of have a nice like landing page for my project so yeah. that then my research paper, I could be like, go read here, read more, that sort of thing. And then it turned out that, you know, I think a few years after I had, I, I was working on a project about um, speech recognition for what are called low resource languages or under-resourced languages, languages where we don't have 
bajillions of hours of recorded data that's yeah. annotated and every which is most of the 7,000 languages in the world don't have this much data collected on them as opposed to the top dozen yeah. you know commercially viable languages that we have all of these series is that the term commercially viable well that's not the t- it's, it's my term okay we'll put it that way <laughs> yeah because i mean english is pretty prolific when it comes to coding and i think japan japanese is like one of the things that github put a lot of focus in because mm. it's one of the countries that are not English first yeah. when it comes to engineering. But it's all surprising on how many other countries are like, oh yeah, all the engineers speak English, they write in English, they code in English. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, I was looking at it from kind of a more of a scientific standpoint yeah. of, you know, if we're trying to study language, we want not just two dozen languages, we want all 7,000 if we can get them or we can, but also from the perspective of, I think, equity, just like, you know, globally and in yeah. terms of access to technology, like speech speech interfaces can be a huge door opener, especially in places where literacy rates are not as high um, or like digital written communication is not as easy and phone lines are easier, that sort of thing. Um, so anyway, I digress. But the point is, <laughs> yeah. I was working on a project for this. I had just put it on GitHub because Dropbox, etc. GitHub <laughs> yeah. page is nice, easy. Also, version control, just that, you know, I know that it's, that it's like I can go back and find it and it's not just on my laptop if my laptop gets destroyed. <laughs> um, the Dropbox solution. Anyway, and a couple years later, somebody... Uh, who was also, I think, a master's or maybe PhD student, found it and ended up extending it and doing their own research, kind of building on that. And so, you know, if it hadn't just been sitting there in the Dropbox that is GitHub for me, perhaps they wouldn't have been able to then find it and then ultimately collaborate um, in kind of a long-term, longitudinal sense. So I like to think that even if a repo isn't necessarily, you know, glowing in terms of stars and activity and whatnot it's you never know when somebody's going to stumble across a thing like the way i stumbled across a link to hacker school at 3 a.m one morning while deep diving on god knows what online you know um you never know when somebody's going to find some work that you did that you made public and they're going to be able to learn for it or or they're going to be able to do something they want to do with it right yeah and i I don't know if the the hacker school or recourse origin story like whoever started that or, or decided to do that it's similar to also how open source projects kind of take off because it's somebody put like your your thesis or your master's work, it's out there. So mm-hmm. then someone's like, hey, I have a question about this. Or now my mind's like now thinking of all this new AI learning when it comes to like there's the conversational chat GPT that came out of open AI where you, you have to ask it questions mm-hmm. and it responds with answers. Mm-hmm. But the question could be like write a Python function that does this and they will give you that. Mm-hmm. Or please explain computational language (laughs) mapping in four or five year old. Yeah. And they like, they will do that. And that's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Obviously they've been working a couple years or at least, I don't know how long they've been working on this, but fascinating stuff. Decades is one way of looking at it, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But that's the other thing is like, we can now take open information through open source or just through papers that are published on the internet Mm -hmm. and don't, we don't have to start from zero. Yeah. Uh, so like you were able to learn in a program or a community or, or tribe. It sounds like more of a tribe since there's no like structure. Uh, but th- you were able to learn in this tribe of the Recurse Center. Yeah. To then say, okay, what do you want to learn? Do you want to try this small like building your own language based on this paper yeah. thing? It's like, yeah, she can. And uh, that's that's the beauty of open source is like being able to discover some of these little, small niche communities that don't necessarily have to be like the, the Reacts and the Pythons of the world. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's so many, uh, there are so many 
really beautiful communities out there that might not be attracting a ton of attention in terms of, you know, social media presence yeah. or otherwise like looking flashy as some of the big projects do, but are nevertheless like amazing people doing amazing work together and just having a lot of fun with it in most cases. And so it's, it's really nice to be able to discover that. And I think like that's why the community piece is so important because I think a lot of the time those little organic kind of serendipitous bump into somebody and say, oh, what are you working on? Oh, doing this thing. You know, then you kind of find out more and more about what's out there and what's possible. Um, and that's why I think it's really, I don't know, uh, it makes me think of like the... Uh, the words self-taught or when people say like I'm a self-taught developer, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I bristle at that because <laughs> I feel like none of us are really self-taught. Even if you sit in a room by yourself and you don't talk to anyone, like you're reading books, maybe somebody wrote those. You're reading people's open source commits and readmes and code comments and whatever. And somebody, you know, somebody left that there. Somebody left that comment there. They didn't just like do the thing that made them feel icky. They left a comment about why it made them feel icky if they're me. Um, <laughs> and they, and that like is helping you learn. So I don't know. I think it's like, it's really all about community and that's why, um, it's so cool to see programs like the Recurse Center where they really, uh, I think everyone actually, whatever code you're working on there has to be open source. Um, so people can't be just kind of like using that time to, I don't know, contribute back to proprietary code bases so that everybody can still learn from it. And likewise, Outreachy, right, which is really trying to make, especially for the more global, uh, historically, you know, marginalized and, and underrepresented in the tech industry population, like make it much easier to get a foot in the door in the open source community for all different walks of life. You don't have to be a computer science student, you know, you don't have to be a coder, you can be whatever. And so I think like the more people we have in that community, the more we're going to be able to learn from each other and each other's, you know, six-year-old <laughs> GitHub repos, whatever. <laughs> and like the better off we'll all be. So yeah, yeah. for sure. And I, I love that the statement that I, honestly, to summarize what you just said, like self, the, the myth of the self-taught programmer, mm, it, it yeah. truly is a myth. Yeah, no. And I think it's much more true. Like, I don't know. I haven't heard somebody say, you know, I'm community taught, but <laughs> I think that's much more, a true. Little more true. And that's I, yeah. Or book taught or yeah, stack overflow exactly. taught. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, uh, maybe have, having a a self-directed path, sure, a path yeah. where you had to decide what to what to study and what to reach out for, but nevertheless, cognizant of the fact that you're doing this not in a vacuum, you know, we're all kind of part and parcel together, so. Excellent. Well, I, I think we can wind down there. I did want to ask you, really, to summarize, you had mentioned, I don't know if it was when we hit record or not, but the open door uh, oh, to yeah. programming. Could you yeah. summarize that? Yeah, uh, so I think we were talking about, there's a talk I've given called... Um, opening doors with open source. And I sort of talk about how, yeah, my journey to tech, really the the doors that opened for me were through places like the Recurse Center and Outreachy and going to open source conferences like EuroPython is where I got my first job, for example, or like things like that. Um, the, the really amazing things that can do for your career when you put yourself out there, not just as a newbie trying to get into it, but also if you're trying to level up in your career, you know, showing what you can do to future employers or what you can do for a community, that sort of thing. Um, but also I think for companies, you know, open source, I mean, you would, I'm sure have tons to say about this, but like open source can open a lot of doors, uh, 
for like also from in a commercial sense, you know, that we, I think, often think about them as being kind of at loggerheads or something. Or yeah. there's like, I mean, there is this tension. But at the same time, it's like, no, you know, if you have uh, a community that's really excited about your project, even if you're, I don't know, selling the SaaS version of it or whatever it is, you're going to get more users testing it out. You're going to get more valuable feedback on it. You're going to get more um, kind of uh, more more hands on deck in the sense of yeah. not just people who have the free time to be contributing back to your product, but um, but folks who are who, who want to see something that others can benefit from succeed, and so that kind of multiplying effect gets a lot bigger when it's open up to people outside of your organization. So, uh, yeah, that's a talk <laughs> you can check out, I guess. But uh, but I think that that open source is just really amazing for uh, making things accessible, making things um, discoverable for folks who don't necessarily go the traditional paths. Yeah, for sure. 100%. And uh, I'll definitely link that. Uh, so we have a I will, I'll save explaining open source and our, our vision and stories. But we do have a newsletter. Uh, we'll link it below in this video. So definitely check below. Uh, and we'll also link uh, your talk as well in there. So that way we can uh, have more people find that story. Thanks. But uh, with that, I do want to close this out. Anjana, thanks so much for coming through and, and having this conversation with me and Thank you. opening doors for other folks in open source. <laughs> Hope so, yeah. And uh, Outreachy applications are open twice a year. So if that sounds like something of interest, check out outreachy.org. Um, Excellent. And also the Recurse Center. I got I to gotta plug in. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me on. It's been great chatting. Appreciate it. And I'll plug, like, and subscribe, and uh, stay saucy. <laughs> the Secret Sauce of the podcast produced in-house by OpenSauce, the open source intelligence platform providing insights by the slice. If you're in San Francisco and interested in being a guest on the show, find us on Twitter at SauceOpen. And don't forget to check out OpenSauce at opensauce.pizza.